Welcome to the Farming Basics Podcast with Olivia Fuller. We'll have sustainable farming tips from growers across the state and extension specialists at Auburn University. All right, we're back. It's your host, Olivia Fuller, and your co-host, Jacob Kelly. Today, we have Dr. Chip East with us, and we're going to talk about watermelon production. It's one of our favorite crops here in the southeast, and especially here in Alabama. We have the watermelon queens. We have all these state fairs surrounding watermelons, and that's, I feel like, how we know it's summertime here. So, but how do they grow? What's the production like with watermelons? Um, we're going to get into that a little bit today, but welcome, Chip. Good to be here, Olivia and Jacob. So where do you start when you're growing watermelons? Um, what do we want to do first? Several things you may think about. One, I would want to plant in new ground if possible. I'd like to make sure I was planting somewhere where uh, watermelons haven't grown in the past. But watermelons are in the cucurbit family, and that's some of your vining crops, um, squash and cucumber and cantaloupe. And they can carry the same diseases of watermelons, so it's nice to not follow a, another cucurbit crop. And it's also nice if even for five years not to grow watermelons or sometimes other cucurbits in that location. So finding a location can be a, a chore, sometimes a challenge. And um, we might think about what varieties we're going to plant because there are certain, um, call them cultivars, but types of melons that might be more, we can say disease resistant, but sometimes they're disease tolerant. And we might want to be thinking about that a few months or I don't know, weeks anyway, before planting time just to order our seeds and get the ones we want. And I would recommend ones that have the most disease resistance possible because disease is a problem with melons. So you'd say disease is probably the most limiting factor in growing melons or is there something else? Disease would be high on my list. Um, it takes space. It takes labor. I mean, it's, that's with any crop. But when I think of melons, I really disease is something I've really got to check on during the growing season. You mentioned the crop rotation being a great way to mitigate that. But are there other ways that large-scale farmers could utilize that maybe don't have the space to rotate properly? Planting on black plastic could be uh, an option, or it could be white plastic, depending on if we're planting later in the summer, might want to change. But that could get fruit off the ground, and that's could be good. We can graft watermelons, and uh, that's just taking a, a rootstock of a melon that's tolerant to a certain soil-borne disease and putting a, the sign or the, the, the desirable melon we're after onto that rootstock, and it'll heal. There's a process there, and you can buy plants already grafted, or farmers can graft their own. A lot, Several of them do. And uh, planting these areas... But um, even if I did grafting, I would still love for it to be a few years between these diseases can harbor or live in this, on this dead vine from the last year and the year before. So plowing that up and don't just leave a field sitting. When that crop is done, I want it plowed up and something else in a different vegetable family planted there. Cover crops could be planted there. It wouldn't have to be a vegetable, but just something I want these this matter that's left, the vines and all to, be, to rot as fast as it can. How early should we be planting watermelons? Because we're trying to get them out before the 4th of July, right? That's that's a good question. We are. And um, you're always fighting the, 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 the growers that are further south than you can get it to market faster than you. So wherever you are, there's it's 
It's something to think about. So I mentioned if you do on black plastic, that soil, it's when the soil warms up and the black plastic will help the soil warm up faster so we can plant them earlier. And it, that's a big deal. It does cost money, but you, you hopefully would get that on, on the return. Instead of planting seeds, which we certainly can, that's done a lot, we can, to speed up the process, we can plant transplants. Transplants cost money. I mean, it takes time to grow the transplant. It's sometimes not as, I mean, they're easy to grow, but you need a protected area, a greenhouse maybe to grow them in because we're talking about planting seeds a month or so before you'd plant them in the field. So you got to heat a place and have a protected area to do that. So speaking of seeds, um, seedless or seeded? I feel like that's a big debate here in the Southeast. What's the option that people should look into for taste, maybe the hardiness coming into factor? It just depends on your market. Um, seeded melons are much cheaper to grow. So if your clientele doesn't matter if it's seeded or not, then seeded may be a good option for you. The last 20 years or more, more and more acreage have went into seedless melons. And those tend to be smaller, right? Or is that just the varieties that I'm seeing? Might just be the varieties because there's several different that you can get that's large that's seedless. But it is common to the icebox type to be, or personal melons, people call them to be seedless. I do like those. Those seem sweeter. I don't know if it's just because they're cuter, but they seem like they (laughs) taste a lot sweeter. And you're losing space when you do uh, seedless watermelons because you have to have a pollinizer or uh, a plant there to provide pollen for the crop you want to grow, right? That's exactly right. The, The seedless melons don't produce viable pollen, so we have to plant a seeded melon in the field. Okay, make sure you're, and and it's like a third, like two thirds could be seedless, a third could be seeded. And it's interesting, you you can plant all different ways, but bees like to work down the row. So instead of planting two rows of seedless and one row of seeded and two, bees don't, they go down the row, that's not helping a lot. So this is, you got to keep up with it. It's confusing or, or you got to think when you're planting. But you, you down that, when we're planting, we need to do down the same row, two seedless, one seeded. Two seedless, one down a row, and the bees will work down that row better. And that's so interesting because I, I do see a lot of farmers calling and saying that their plants aren't getting pollinated because this is a crop that's growing in the hottest part of the summer. The pollinators aren't flying quite as far. They're not maybe even as active during that time and the heat of the day. So I I see like a lot of farmers not getting the pollination they need. And we need, it's kind of recommended to have about a hive of bees to the acre. Well, if you only got two acres, that's easily done. But what if you had (laughs) 70, 80, 90 acres, you you know. You almost need those little pollinator habitats mixed in uh, throughout. Managing your pollinators would be more and more important to you. That's a big deal. That's money that you're not getting just through pollination. And they make, and make sure your your pollinator plant is a different rind pattern than the seedless, or you can't tell them apart. It needs to be a different color or, or something. The watermelon companies or seed companies will recommend certain pollinators for whatever variety you have, and they're a companion plant to go with it. You don't even harvest them. It, it's just full of seeds and taste terrible, but they produce a lot of pollen. In that case, you're plant- I like planting something you can eat, a third of something you can eat that pollinates the 
uh, seedless, but they make these companion melons that all they do is produce pollen. It's not an edible fruit. They make a fruit, but it's just not an edible fruit, but they produce a lot of pollen, and they're you can certainly tell them apart, too. They're not the same shape in all of some of the other melons. One time I was asked to work a farmer's market for a grower, and uh, he knew which watermelon was seedless and which one had seeds. And he was telling by the shape. The rind pattern was the same. But when I got out there to sell them, I'm like, which one is which? And so I spent some time having to cut some open and learn right there on the spot. I probably sold a couple of seeded watermelon is seedless. Uh, it can get quite confusing if they've got the same rind pattern. The rind pattern is my favorite thing to determine the difference. But, yeah, they can be elongated or round, but still, I like the rind pattern better. What kind of spacing requirements? These things, I mean, I've seen some vines that are like 20, 30 feet long, and then some of them maybe only get, you know, five or six feet, eight feet long. You know, uh, what are the general spacing requirements for are different watermelons. Yeah, it depends on what size melon you're going for. Some people want that uh, county fair trophy winner blue ribbon. I don't know how many hundred pounds. Championship watermelon. Yeah, one, it's the variety or cultivar you plant needs to be, you don't want to plant one of them icebox ones and give it all the fertilizer and water and, and mulch it and sing to it and all that, it's never going to be that hundreds of pound big melon. So you need to plant a variety that's going to get big in the first place. That's number one. And yes, the fertility, we, we keep all that up, give it space to grow. And on larger melons, it's um, t 24 to 30 square feet per plant. Now we could even go beyond that larger. And if you're growing melons year after year, and you want them a certain size, you can manipulate that a little bit and, you know, give them 20 square feet instead of 24, for instance. And if you got if you want a 10-pound melon and your seeds are a 15-pound melon, there's things we can do to try to get them to the size we want because it's the taste or color pattern or whatever reason we like but that melon. But singing to them's not one of those. Yeah, singing <laughs> might not work. Alabama Ag Credit is a proud sponsor of the Farming Basics podcast. Buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and lands to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. On the icebox melons, they can be 13 or 14 square feet per plant. And it's it's common, like on the, the, the larger melons, to have six-foot rows with plant space uh, 42 to 60 inches apart down the row. But that can vary depending on what's, what we're looking for. Okay, so you've, you've babied them up to this point. What about harvest? So you get to the fun part. How do you know when they're ready? Yep. Well, you can always, when the coyotes start eating them, you'll know you're about... <laughs> Yeah. We can cut into them and, and see, but I like to look. in The seed package will tell you days to maturity, but those are all relative. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. you don't know that thing blooms. They don't all bloom the same day, so they're not all going to mature the same day. And also, I like to look at the tendril closest to the melon. The tendril's the little curly, what would happen if it was growing up something the, the vine attach itself to a fence or something that curly tendril when that tendril starts to wilt i would start cutting into some then 
And if you grow the same cultivar year after year, you'll be able to look and say, that one's ready, that one's ready, that one's ready, if you grow the same one. But sometimes it's when the second tendril starts to wilt. It just depends on the melon. But when you grow the same one year after year, you'll learn. But I look at the tendril. You can look under the melon and the, the color. And, but and if you again, if you grow the same one, you can do that. But I look at the tendril, and then there's nothing wrong with cutting one or two open. And on the consumer side, too, I like to tell people that are buying them to look at the yellow belly to make sure, because sometimes people think that that's a sign of something wrong, a disease or something. That's but. all the consumer can do. You're leaving it up to that farmer that to know exactly when to harvest those melons. Right. So you shouldn't use a piece of pine straw that points a certain direction to tell you when they're ripe. Because I've seen this, and it didn't work. But people are using it. I've heard of things like that before, but no, that's not what I would do. I would look at the tendril. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad we got that cleared up. So no pine straw, guys. I know I might have told you that, but no, I'm just kidding. The tendrils is the way to go. So you're ready to harvest. You know that they're ready. What goes into watermelon harvesting, like on a large scale? Is there any tips you have? Is it labor intensive? A lot of people, well, I, I said your rows might be six feet apart, and that varies, but let's just say they're six feet apart and we plant. A lot of people will skip a row every so often in their field, and they'll drive their equipment down that skip row. Just to make and, life uh, easier. Spread out in the field and, and harvest, and you'll come back to that same field, and you won't harvest everything the same day. They don't all mature at the same time. And all, but the more you walk in the field and you step on vines, it's it's hard. But I like the spacing spread out. I, we didn't talk pesticides, but that also helps in spraying. And I want to have that skip. It just depends on your equipment. I, I hate to say how many rows you'd have and then skip a row. But it helps on harvesting. It helps on spraying pesticides when needed. There are several foliar diseases and watermelons get, and it sure helps to be able to treat those diseases yeah it can be tough to spray um like weed control for instance you know how do you manage weed control are you able to get out there and do a quick burn down and put out a pre-emergent uh before the vines start you know coming off the plastic or uh what are your limitations on weed control some things i would think about is do a burn down before we make the beds if if it's plastic culture what plastic culture can help but we do a pre-emergent herbicide between the rows and sometimes under the plastic as well. Just It just depends. But at least between the rows really helps. And um, we can do, there's some post-emergent options we have, especially for grass control between the rows that really helps as the season goes on. There's just, you're limited on how close to harvest, but we would be using these way earlier in the year. Uh, when you're close to harvest, usually we don't do any we're treating for disease, but we're not worried a lot about the, the weeds. We should have already handled that earlier in the season. You can plant a cover crop that'll stay low uh, until your vines hopefully get out and shade out all the competition. Or Cover crops would be a, is an excellent way of managing your, your weeds as well. It prevents those other seeds from uh, even being produced if you have a good cover crop the season or the before planting the melons. So if you have a weed, though, you would rather have grasses than broadleaf weeds. Grasses are easier to kill with post-emergent herbicides than melons. Right. Yeah, sea farmers save a lot of money on cover crops. Well, thank you. That was very helpful. One more opinion-based question before we go. Do you have a favorite watermelon? There's a lot of melons I like. I've always wanted to do a blind taste test on watermelons, 
because a lot of people are, and I don't want to disagree with anybody. If you like a red one, you like a red one. I'm, I'm not, don't care. But I wish we could blindfold people and let them eat some yellow meated watermelons as well. And see, one of my favorite ones was developed here at Auburn by Joe Norton, and it's a U Golden producer. And that's a good melon. It's a round melon, it's, but it's a good yellow one. And I would highly recommend that if you can get the seeds. But uh, That's kind of what you said for the tomatoes, too. I think we both agreed we like the yellow tomatoes. I wonder if there's a, something that's sweeter innately about the yellow flesh. We've done tomato taste tests, too, and it's a lot of fun. But up at Coleman, they don't have experiment station there anymore, but back when they had it, they did a watermelon taste test, and a U Golden producer was in that taste test. But there was a lot people liked. Everybody don't like the same thing. So whatever you've been eating forever, if you like it, that's fine. But how do you know that's your favorite without trying different things? Right, yeah. And so I recommend uh, there's several different watermelons that are good. But whatever you've been growing, continue to grow that. But I would look at some with more disease resistance because I know that's an issue every year. I do like the yellow watermelons. I'd never had one until... I got into this position, and one of my growers had yellow watermelons, and he was like, you need to try it. And I was like, I don't know. It ain't red. My home county has a yellow-meated watermelon festival. Really? Yeah, the yellow ones are good now. Don't, Don't go sleeping on the yellow watermelons. All right, Chip, one more thing before we get out of here. How do you make a seedless watermelon? Watermelons have 22 chromosomes, and we call those diploids. It's just seeded watermelons. Well, in a lab setting, or these seedlings or seeds can be sprayed with a chemical that uh, increases the chromosomes. It'll, it'll stop cell division is what it does, and they have 44 chromosomes. Well, those will produce seedless melons. Well, they don't come up good. The germination rate's bad. You do not want to go plant these directly in a field. You're going to want to plant these in a greenhouse, grow the transplants, and then plant the transplants, set the transplants in the field. Um, they don't produce good pollen at all, so they've got to be pollinated by, we call them a diploid, by that 22 chromosome one. So you'll have these tetraploids, that's what we call them when they have those 44 chromosomes. We plant those, they're pollinated by a diploid. The result of that melon is, we call them triploids, and it's seedless. It won't have seeds in it. So we call these triploid melons. Are the, And it's not GMO or anything. It's just natural plant breeding. But it is a chemical used to stop that cell division. And that's why they're so expensive. Because some it's, it's, it's just a lot of labor and time separating these out and keeping them separate. I mean, it's... And then somebody, why seedless melons? Why somebody, you have to grow the transplants. We can't just plant them in the field. So that's why seedless melon costs more money. The farmer has a lot... The seeds are expensive, a lot more expensive than a diploid, a regular seeded one. So the seeds are high. You have to do the transplants. Well, that increases the cost greatly, and that's why they cost more in, in the long run. But you don't have to spit a seed out either, so you, you, you're getting something for that. And the acreage of seedless has went up greatly in the last 20 years. You can charge more for those seedless, You too. charge more for them, you got more in them, too. <laughs> well, thanks for explaining all of this to us, Chip. Thank you all. This has been a production of Alabama Extension at Auburn University.